Hello there, friends. I'm your host, Kendra Winchester, and this is Reappalachia, a podcast celebrating Appalachian literature and writing. This is episode 12, which is all about Breed Appalachia's birthday. That's right, a year ago for Read Appalachia's birthday, I announced that Read Appalachia will become a podcast. And three years ago, I was up in the middle of the night <laughs> making Read Appalachia's logo in Canva. Oh my stars. I, at the time, three years ago, it was during the like first year of the pandemic. Uh, my husband had found a new job down in Beaufort, South Carolina. So we were moving down to the low country and I had so much anticipatory grief, uh, homesickness uh, for these foothills that I had been in my entire adult life. I didn't expect to feel that way. It was a bit of a shock. I remember writing about it, I think for Book Riot or something, and and some people just didn't understand the connection to place that I have. And I've always been a homebody, a hometown girl. I love nostalgia. The comfort is what I need. And of course, you know, we all have difficult things in our life and that hometownness can comfort us during those times. And I think the pandemic was certainly a time where we all needed comfort for sure. I honestly did not expect that choice to make that logo and to start those accounts on Twitter and Instagram. I did not expect to be here, but I am so happy. I am so happy that it did. So today is a bit of a special episode for you. It is dealer's choice. As many of you know, if you have been listening to the podcast, I choose books and interviews based on themes. And usually these themes, I want to explore an idea around Appalachian literature or genre or something like that. But I love so many different authors and they don't always necessarily fit in a particular theme. So today is dealer's choice. I have chosen to, (laughs) you know, the dad joke lover in me wants to make a joke about how joyful this episode will be. (laughs) I will spare you all. I will spare you all. You can imagine a joke in your mind if you so desire. Today, I will be talking to David Joy and Joy Priest, two authors whom I have read since starting Read Appalachia and have grown to love. So those are my two guests for today. Um, But before that, I wanted to answer some questions. I didn't ask me anything, and I talked to a few folks about questions that they might have about Read Appalachia. So I'm going to start with those and then we'll move into the interviews. Okay, so I'm going to start this Ask Me Anything. So this is basically just a fun little thing to do so you can get to know me, I can get to know you, and please feel free to shoot me any DMs, messages, emails with more questions um, and I will save them for a future Ask Me Anything Okay, so the first thing is, where do you discover Appalachian books? I feel like that is a great question. I think it really speaks to a problem that we often have here in Appalachia, which is the idea of book discovery. And this idea is basically how do readers discover the books that they pick up and buy? Like what inspires them to pick that book up and buy it and read it? I think indie presses in particular really have a a challenge of getting their books out there, which is why I personally seek out 
indie presses, small presses, and university presses. I follow my favorite presses on social media, and I also follow bookish influencers. Now, this is influenced by my former job of Reading Women, where that's all I did was books by about women, and that was my entire life. I <laughs> I thought about it all day long. If you like to ask me about my favorite women authors, please do. Um, actually, there's a question later about my favorite authors, and of course, um, women are the stars. No surprise. Um, but for me, I think book discovery is finding people on social media whose recommendations I trust. I also used to have a booktube channel. I mean, I still do. It's still existing. Uh, but I quit making videos during the pandemic because I was very anxious and overwhelmed. And uh, that's just what happened during the move. But I also have a lot of like trusted booktubers who I follow. I don't really find books to read on TikTok. That's not really my speed. But I do love to watch random things on TikTok that aren't book related. Anyway, I would love to know how you all discover books. I hope you all have discovered books through Read Appalachia. That's actually part of why I wanted to create Read Appalachia was because I was noticing it was really difficult to discover new Appalachian books. So hopefully this has filled a gap in that area, but there's always room for more. Uh, question is, what are your favorite books? And this person did not say whether it was my favorite Appalachian books or just favorite books in general. So I'm going to list some books that may, that I don't, neither of these are Appalachian um, because I've already talked about a lot of my favorite Appalachian authors. So my first, uh, I'm going to do favorite dead author, <laughs> favorite classic author, I think is a more, um, I don't know, appropriate isn't the right word, but a more polite way to say it. Um, I love Virginia Woolf. And there's something about finding a voice that speaks like your brain works. You know, her work is very stream of consciousness. She is arguably the mother of, of modernism. And the way that she talks about her own disabled and mentally ill existence is something I deeply relate to. I grew up in a very um, conservative culture, so a room of one's own was very much my daily life. And so it would spoke to me where I was at at the time, and that was really important to me. Now we could talk about, you know, her problematic elements like all classic authors have, um, but I think that her work spoke to me at a certain time, which is why, um, you know, moving on from classic authors, uh, Desmond Ward is my favorite living author. She has a new book out this fall. I might implode with joy. I love her. There's something about Salvage the Bones, which I don't know how many times I've reread it. I tend to reread my favorite sections, so I have no idea. But I love her work. Her work is stunning. It's amazing. And it is, it's so beautiful and such well-crafted novels. They're just so rich and layered so much depth to them. Her writing, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, is just incredible. So I could gush forever about Desmond Ward. I will spare you, but she is, um, those are the two authors actually inspired Reading Woman from my part. Um, and uh, love, love them always. So another question, I, I'm not, can't remember if a family member submitted this or not, but it would not surprise me. Um, your corgis, what are their jobs? 
what do they do for the podcast? So Dylan has the job. I always said on Reading One was a sound editor. Now I think he's been promoted to assistant producer for sure. He is very involved. Um, He knows when I pick up my computer from off the couch that we're going to the library and he loves the library. Obsessed. Uh, He even knows the word library. Gwenlian doesn't know any words. Uh, She doesn't really know much. She's very cute, very happy to be here, very emotionally sensitive. But yeah, we say she has about five or six brain cells, depending on the day. Um, She is our useless intern. She is a cardigan Welsh corgi, so they are the older of the two breeds. It's a long story. I'm happy to tell you sometime over coffee. Uh, But she (laughs) she is our forever puppy. We'll just say. So they are delightful. Um, Dylan recently lost some privileges when he threw up during an interview for this podcast. So um, we're working through that, you know, maybe some family therapy is in store for dear Dylan and I. Um, (laughs) So next is a logistical question. Thank you so much for asking this. I do plan a lot. I do have spreadsheets and lists of bounding. So the question is, you've mentioned this is season one, was in store for season two. Yes, I am planning season two already. Season one was Appalachian Literature 101. I really wanted to answer some fundamental questions about Appalachian literature as reference points to link back to. Season two, I have not figured out an overarching theme yet. I'm sure there won't be one, knowing me, but I do know I am working on a series of episodes about Appalachian states. These will not be all in a row. They will just be as they come together, but I really want to look at the literature, Appalachian literature, from each Appalachian state recognized by the ARC. I think it's really important that we celebrate all of Appalachia. I know there are a lot of feelings about who or who doesn't belong in Appalachia, but I personally feel a more open-hearted feeling towards uh, Appalachian culture. And there's so many different cultures. Why not celebrate them all? Why not celebrate all the different states? And yes, I've never had a pepperoni roll, but have you ever even seen the strange creature that is Ohio Valley pizza? I mean, those are just two examples, but uh, (laughs) in the realm of literature, I think I'll start with Ohio because of course, hometown girl, but also off the top of my head, I can name maybe a handful of Ohio Appalachian authors, but if we, I were to start in a state like North Carolina, there's like a dozen I can name off the top of my head. That's way more intimidating. So we'll see, but that is the plan. And we'll, uh, we'll see what happens from there. So the last question I have is what books that aren't from Appalachia that you've been reading that you would recommend? I love this question. I read books from all over. And so there's always uh, other books I love to talk about as well. So the first one is Our Share of Night by Mariana Enriquez. Um, and this is translated from Spanish by Megan McDowell. And this is set in Argentina, and it features Juan, who is, uh, it's I think, believe that around the 1980s, and he's traveling with his son up from Buenos Aires to a northern town above Buenos Aires. And um, we know that his wife, who's recently passed away, 
her family is involved in something called the Order, and it's mysterious and dark, and we don't know why, but we do know they want to get their hands on Juan's son, and we don't know why. It's very mysterious. It's a very long novel, and it's a horror novel, just FYI, and it really looks at the effects of people in power uh, in Argentina at the time and how that impacts the people around them. It is, it is, again, is a horror novel, lots of graphic violence, so that's not your thing. Please skip it. <laughs> but if you are for a horror novel for spooky season, which is just around the corner, definitely pick that one up. If you're not into horror novels, the other one I'm going to recommend is the audiobook specifically of Tom Lake by Ann Patchett. And this is performed by Meryl Streep. Yes, that Meryl Streep. I love this book. Tom Lake, I did not know what I was getting myself into, but it's about this woman who is in this like Woodstock like theater for the summer, falls in love with this other actor in the play. She's in our town. And so it's a mother guy random in the play, not George. She's playing Emily, but it's not George. And she falls in love with him, sort of. They have a fling. And uh, that's really what happened then. But she's like now an adult and it's 2020, beginning of the pandemic. Her three daughters and her are at the family cherry orchard and they are kind of bored, you know, kind of overwhelmed by the pandemic. And so she's telling the story of how she fell in love with this very famous actor who just wasn't famous at the time. And it's just a really delightful, low stakes, very relationship oriented story. And I absolutely loved it. Finished it in a couple days. Again, audiobook, Meryl Streep, perfection. What's not to love? So yeah, those are the Ask Me Anything questions. Again, I will be doing this in the future. So if you have another question, definitely shoot me an email at readappalachia um, at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to answer that or store it away for the next Ask Me Anything. So like I've mentioned in previous episodes, Read Appalachia is mostly funded by me, but there are folks who do pitch in and support the podcast in different ways. And so I'm going to talk about those ways today. And if you would like to give Read Appalachia a birthday gift, I would greatly appreciate um, any of these different kinds of support. And I've made sure to include kinds of support for all budgets. So of course, the first one is that you can rate and review Read Appalachia in your podcatcher of choice. And whether this is on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Audible, which also apparently does podcasts, you can go over there and rate and review the podcast, obviously, preferably favorably, but that really helps people find the podcast and it really helps people if there are very recent reviews as well, as that is more review on most recent episodes. So anything you can do in that area would be wonderful. And of course, you can also share Read Appalachia with a friend. And I greatly appreciate all of you who do that. I see your posts on um, Instagram, threads, Twitter, whatever it's called now. <laughs> I really appreciate you spreading the word about Read Appalachia. Um, and, you know, I am just a team of one here in South Carolina. So I, I really greatly appreciate it. And um, thank you to all of you who have already done that. I'll be back later in the show to talk about different ways that you can support Read Appalachia. But in the meantime, let's get back 
to today's episode. Okay, so for our interviews today, uh, later on the show, I'll be talking to Joy Priest, who is a poet, a member of the Appalachian Poets, and she has also edited a new anthology of Louisville Poets, and so I'll be talking to her later. But first, I'm talking to David Joy, who is a North Carolina author uh, who writes like literary fiction with like a crime bent. Sometimes I see his books listed as crime novels. I feel like they're a great blend of literary and crime, and the focus is really on the characters as well. I first read When These Mountains Burn in 2020 when I interviewed Leah Hampton and Annette Smith Clapsaddle for Reading Women, and they both recommended David Joy's novels. And I love how North Carolina writers like love each other so much. It's a delight. And so I read the book and I was just like, this book is outstanding. I need to read more. So I went and found all of the original hardcovers of his books. And that's really where it all started. And so now David Joy has a book out called Those We Thought We Knew, which is about a North Carolina, like a Western North Carolina Appalachian community. And it's set in 2019. And this is a very different book, for, I think, for David Joy. I feel like it's a, an evolution of his writing and development in that way. I feel like this is his most skillfully written novel. It is has so much layered and depth to it. So I could gush about it forever. But you know what? How about let's talk to David Joy about his novel. Uh, so yeah, how about let's let's take it away and uh, here's the interview. Yeah, uh, my name is David Joy. Uh, I live in Jackson County, North Carolina, which for anybody who's never been there is about an hour west of Asheville. Uh, most people know Asheville. Uh, that's Buncombe County, next county over is Haywood, next county over is Jackson. Uh, and I've, I guess this is my fifth novel. Um, I wrote one book of nonfiction before all of that. But yeah, I'm, I'm just, uh, all of it's very place-based, uh, set right here where I live. We are recording this uh, a few uh, weeks before the publication of your book. How are you how are you feeling right now, heading into all the flurry that is releasing a book into the world? Especially releasing a novel at that level, you know, is is always is, it feels like you holding a scratch off ticket. So, like you know, best case scenario, you're gonna win fifty bucks. Uh, worst case scenario, you're gonna have to throw it in the trash and figure out how to pay for your gasoline. Uh, this one's a little bit better than maybe than the last one because it was in COVID. Uh, you know, when these mountains burn released in the summer of 2020, and uh, you know that felt like picking up a scratch off ticket that had already been scratched, where you knew you was a loser. <laughs> uh, so, so this one maybe is a little bit better than that. Uh, but at the same time, it's a it's a really scary novel to release out into the world as as the author in the sense that. You know, it's dealing with a lot of uh, big issues, uh, you know, and, and important issues. But at the same time, I think that can be a, a scary thing to put out. You know, you know you're going to catch heat uh, from lots of different angles. You know that you inevitably drop the ball in certain places. Uh, you know, uh, when you take the types of risks I took 
with that novel, you you know, you can't get it all right. There's no way to get it all right. Uh, and, and so it's a scary novel in that sense. Um, but in the, in the same way, I've, you know, five novels in, there's really not a whole lot that can happen to me at this point that ain't happened already. Uh, and so you mentioned that especially a book like this is, um, you know, sometimes daunting to put out. What would, how would you describe the book? I guess, I guess I'm asking you to practice your elevator pitch, but how would you describe the book? I'm lucky I had never had to do it. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I, and people always talk about that and like developing one and I'm horrible at it. Cause when somebody <laughs> asks me what the book's about, to me, it's a philosophical question. You know, it's like, uh, you know, what was Jim Harrison's farmer about? Uh, it's not, I think people want a plot synopsis and that's not the way I think about that question. Uh, but so for me, uh, plot synopsis, I guess, you know, it starts with a young black artist who's returned to kind of her ancestral home in Jackson County, North Carolina. She'd grown up in Atlanta and she starts, uh, she's basically trying to track her family's history. And while she's there, she kind of, uh, uncovers some history that she didn't know about her, her family cemetery, basically having been forcibly dug up and moved and she's an artist and so all of these things start influencing her artwork and as she's doing these installation pieces in a primarily white community uh she starts ruffling a lot of feathers and it's kind of about those tensions that emerge um you know when the things that are just under the surface start bubbling to the top um and and so as far as what I was trying to do with the novel is that I was, I was trying to force white characters into difficult conversations, uh, about race. I, you know, I wanted, I wanted to, uh, to force their hands in that sense. Uh, and, and I wanted to force people to have conversations that they're not having, uh, you know, and, and to do that. I, th I think most of my novels in the past have been kind of, a an exercise and seeing how fast I can make the train go. It's like I'm shoveling coal and just seeing how fast I can make the train go. And this book felt different in the sense that it was more about the places that the train stopped, um, you know, and, and what existed in those quiet spaces in between. But yeah, so I mean, the book is largely about race and it's about race very specifically in Jackson County, North Carolina. But, but the truth is that it's about a lot of issues across the entire American South and America at large. I, I was listening to an interview um, on Western Carolina's Western Wednesdays. I uh, found it was delightful. And you talked about how your last novel and this novel took a lot more out of you than your first three novels. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that and, and what you meant by took a lot out of you? Yeah, well, I think, you know, in the end, as a writer or as any type of artist, I think the goal is for uh, the scope to continue to expand. And so the things that you did earlier in your career uh, aren't necessarily things that, you, that you're continuing to try to do. And so with these last two novels especially, I think they were social novels in the ways that those first three perhaps weren't. Uh, and it wasn't that I wasn't playing with some bigger ideas in those first three novels. Uh, but you know, with the, with the last novel, when these mountains burn, it was very much, uh, 
it emerged out of an opioid epidemic. Uh, it, it emerged out of driving into town and stepping out in the post office parking lot and there being needles all over the parking lot. Uh, it emerged from driving through town and seeing medics pull bodies from out from under bridges where people had overdosed and died down by the creek. Um, you know, and so that book was trying to do bigger things. With this novel, though, it's it it's that times a thousand, uh, in the sense that you know I I started writing parts of this novel a decade ago, uh, you know the the character of Willie Dean Cawthorn, you know I I, I wrote that first scene about him probably 2012, and it was a constant battle of trying to get that book right, and then I think the biggest issue with this book was that. Uh, you know what the book's about and you know the issues I'm dealing with. And I was really writing a lot of it around 2019 and into 2020. The book's set in 2019. And then when 2020 happens and all of a sudden we've got a Maud Arbery, you know, gunned down in Georgia. Uh, you know, maybe a month later we've got Breonna Taylor, you know, killed by police in Kentucky. Uh, you know, a couple months later you've got George Floyd. And suddenly the whole country is at this fracture point, right? And uh, suddenly so many of the things that I'd been writing about in the novel were happening in real time and they were happening right outside my door. Uh, so for instance, you know, there's, there's a conflict in this novel regarding a Confederate statue. And I had written that scene before it happened. And suddenly it's literally happening. And it became very difficult to navigate that space between the reality that was existing outside my door and the fictionalized reality that I was trying to create in the novel. And navigating that space between those two uh, was honestly debilitating. Um, you know, I, I, I couldn't figure out how to how to move back and forth. Uh, and, and so this this book was just one that took a whole lot longer. You know, I, I actively wrote on it for about five years. Uh, I never looked at the deadline on my contract. And when it, when I finished the novel and I turned it in, it was like it was two years past deadline. Uh, but again, I wasn't worried about that. I was worried about trying to get the book right, you know. I appreciate that because to me, it's important that art has the time that it needs to become the best version of itself, which, um, you know, you talk a lot about art in the book as, um, you know, one of the characters is an artist and she's working, um, living at her grandmother's house and working and studying her family history and, and different things. And I really grew to love, uh, I grew to love these characters and, I think that's something that you do very well is that you have an understanding of them. I feel like you know these characters and like their entire lives and you're just giving us this little glimpse into what what they're doing. For you, how do you go about the process of writing a character? Do you have a plot in mind and you need a character to be that vehicle or does, you know, just a character spring to mind and so you look for a story for them? Yeah. Well, I think in the past what has happened is that a lot of the things were image driven. And like, uh, you know, I would have and and not necessarily like a still image, like, uh, you know, a lot of writers talk about that. like Ron Rash talks about uh, having an image of a woman on a white horse. And that's all he had was like a steeled frame picture of a woman on a white horse that becomes Serena. 
Uh, for me, it's not like that. It's more like a fragment of a scene. Like I can see things happen. And then it's a matter of figuring out, okay, who are these people? How did they get there? Where are they going? With this novel, some of those characters, uh, you know, Willie Dean Cawthorn was the very first character I ever had. And he's largely based off of a, off of a real person. And it, and it was, um, this guy that, you know, I kept seeing him walk down the road and he was just, there was something about him that was off. And I was friends with the deputy at the time. And I asked him about him and, and, uh, he told me that, you know, when this man had shown up in the county, uh, they'd found him sleeping in his car and that he had a notebook with him and that in that notebook, it was a contact list for, for local clan members and that, uh, he recognized most of the names and that it was people he'd known all of his life and had no idea. And I remember when he told me that it was like, it was like that, that is such a Genesis moment for a story. Uh, and, and so I, you know, I wrote Willie Dean Cawthorn first and for a long time, I didn't know what his story was, how he fit into the story. I, I think one of the differences with this novel was that I knew I wanted I knew what I wanted the book to deal with. There's a writer named Geronimo Johnson who, who's just a gorgeous writer. Uh, you know, he wrote a National Book Award finalist called Hold It Till It Hurts. And got another book called Welcome to Braggsville that's great. But anyways, Geronimo and I were talking one time and he was describing his process to me. And at the time it seemed so alien because it was just the absolute opposite of anything I do. Uh, but what Geronimo said is he said, you know, I think about what I want the book to do, and then I create the story to do it. And that was like alien. To, I mean, it was like gibberish. Uh, it was another language. It was like, that is not how I work. With this novel, though, I knew I wanted to deal with race. I knew I wanted to force, you know, I actively wanted to force white characters into difficult conversations. Uh, and then... Something happened maybe around 2019, which is that I was uh, filming a PBS series and and uh, I wound up sitting in an, in Mount Zion Church, which is an old AME church that was started in 1892 by 11 uh, formerly enslaved people. And it's one of the oldest churches in this county. But I was sitting there with that congregation uh, and I was sitting there looking at that, you know, the plaque that is in this novel is, is true, which is, and right now I'm sitting on the campus of Western Carolina university, which asked them to remove their church, dig up their dead and move them down the mountain so that they could make room for a dormitory. And so I was dealing with all of this history. Right. And so suddenly it was like, I had a, I had a way in. Uh, you know, I, I had some way to get to the things that I was wanting to do and it was genuine to place. Uh, it wasn't going to be something that I, that I would have to like fabricate or try to make work. It was like, all of this history is here. All of these communities are here. Uh, you know, how do you create a conflict to where, to where you can create space for these conversations? And, and so, Toya emerged out of that, uh, which was which was that I just thought how brilliant it would be to have this this young artist come here and and figure out this history and know that no one is talking about it or even recognizes it 
and her force them to look at it. With this novel, I think it's important to to kind of speak to this, which is that one of the central questions that that arose out of this novel and part of it, uh, you know, I, I'd been thinking about it the whole time, but then working with an authenticity reader, uh, it became, you know, this big idea that you had to wrestle with, which was, uh, can you write a book about race that is solely intended for a white audience? Uh, and that's not to say that should a black reader engage with the book that the characterization should not hold and should not ring true. But that is to say that most of the issues that are taking place in this novel are things that have been lived and understood ad nauseum by that community. Uh, and the sad fact is that the majority of white America is very far back in the conversation. Uh, and so my answer was not only that you can write a book about race that is primarily intended for a white audience, but that you need to be writing these books. Uh, you know, I, I, I go back to that Toni Morrison, you know, line in that charlie rose interview that was 30 years ago in the early 90s and i'll butcher the line but basically she said white people in this country have a problem and she said you need to you need to sit down and talk about this and she said you need to leave me out of it uh and 30 years later we're in the same place uh you know i go back and and watch that james baldwin video where where the man tries to, you know, it's this, it's this sociologist, sociologist, and he, and he basically says, why does it have to be about race? And he's asking James Baldwin this, you know, at this, that's seventy years ago, and Baldwin says, because I'm gonna die. He said the difference is, is my life, is, you know, my life is on the line, uh, and that's why. And seventy years later we're still asking the same question. Why does it have to be about race? And so the, when I, when it came time to write this book, uh, you know, that, that was the space that I was trying to create it within. Uh, and it's not a book that's cozy. Uh, it's a book that's going to make you uncomfortable. The majority of readers are going to be made uncomfortable at some point or another. Uh, and it'll be very easy to put that book down. But what I would hope is that that you sit with that discomfort and, and you try to figure out why. Why does it make you feel that way? Uh, and it's OK to be angry uh, at different things. Sit with that. Think why. Um, you know, books are safe places for us to sit with very difficult ideas. Uh, it can be very difficult to sit down and have a conversation about the things we're talking about right now. Um, a book is a place where you get to sit down and do that on your own. Uh, it's nobody but you. And, 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 you know, I think that's one of the most powerful things about literature is that it is that it creates a safe place for us to sit with and, uh, you know, chew on difficult ideas. So this podcast is partially funded by the folks over at Ko-Fi. 
Ko-Fi is a way that people can tip the podcast and Ko-Fi uses uh, the phrase like buying us a cup of coffee. And this is a way that helps support the cost of running the show, the hosting of the website, the hosting of the podcast, um, any like tech we use, the everything from the Zoom subscription to do the interviews, uh, any sort of design features that cost some funds. And without them, I would not be able to run the podcast. So I greatly appreciate it. Over on Ko-Fi, I share future themes, future guests, all sorts of different things so that you can be the first to know what's going on. And yes, I am so grateful for you all. It is a lovely way to be able to support Read Appalachia and uh, for folks to get a little inside look. So you can head over to Ko-Fi and of course, that will be linked in our show notes. All right, now back to the show. I love to hear how authors process different things and their process for writing the stories that they tell. This style of storytelling, um, I see a lot of like Appalachian noir, uh, Appalachian Gothic, Gritlet. There's all of these different terms for something with this kind of vibe. And there's a lot of different writers who do this in various ways and traditions, et cetera. Do you, do you identify with a particular label or do you just write what you want to write and people can decide what they want to call it? Yeah, but so when, when my first novel came out, Where All Light Tends to Go, uh, um, this wasn't really a thing thing, you know? Uh, th- and that's not to say that I was doing something uh, entirely unique that hadn't been done. That's just saying that you didn't really have these labels, right? Like, uh, you know, if you were to ask me the tradition I was coming out of, it, it would have been a tradition of someone like Ron Rash, uh, you know, and no one was calling Ron Rash Appalachian Noir. Uh, you know, I, I would say they still don't call him that. Um, but but that term was kind of catching in different places. And for me, uh, you know, I kept thinking one of the biggest influences on me, especially early, was Daniel Woodrell. Uh, you know, and he had at one point in time, he had a, the novel was called Give Us a Kiss. Um, but it had a subtitle at the beginning. It was Give Us a Kiss, a Country Noir. And um, he later disassociated himself from that term uh, because I think he felt like he was getting pigeonholed into places he didn't necessarily feel he belonged. Um, but so for me, I, I cast that idea of Appalachian noir uh, with that first novel uh, kind of out of that Daniel Woodrell vein. Uh, but also, it, I think I think for me where that term works is that noir is very much about mood um, and it's about capturing a feeling and it's about this kind of uh, there's this ever present darkness uh, to, to the world. And that is fitting for, for a lot of my work, uh, especially some of the earlier stuff. I think about a novel like the way to this world, uh, you know, the opening line of that novel is Aiden McCall was 12 years old. The one time he heard, I love you. Uh, you know, that, that novel from the opening line to the end line, it's, it's not sunshine and rainbows. <laughs> you know, um, I like that idea of grit lit in the sense that it, it brings in a lot of writers like Larry Brown, William Gay, uh, you know, Harry Cruz, you know, all of these writers. And, and that's really the tradition that I'm coming out of. 
Uh, you know, they, they called that the rough South. You know, I think that's the tradition that a lot of writers who are, who are finding places uh, and audiences right now are coming out of. At the same time, uh, you know, I've tended to be classified with crime fiction, and I don't know that my work fits there as much. I consider what I'm doing literary fiction. That's all classifications for libraries and bookstores, you know, uh, and at the end of the day, I don't really care. Um, I, I want to tell a compelling story and I want, I want, you know, the role of art is, you know, I think twofold and one is, is to elicit some type of emotional response out of your audience, uh, whatever that may be, whether that be anger, sadness, happiness, I don't care what they feel as long as they feel it. Uh, and then the other side is I think that, that when it's done well, it has, it has the capacity to, you know, illuminate some aspect of the human condition. And that's all I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, you know, uh, make, make a reader feel something. And I'm trying to make them think about the world maybe a little differently than they have before. Uh, and so call it whatever you want, as long as it does those two things, I'm happy. My, my older brother is a fisherman like that is his life's blood, I feel like. Uh, they would go up to Ely for fishing trips. And so I grew up with all this. My brother bought me an ugly stick and I was like, you need to at least be able to participate and just sit and catch sunfish or something. And so that was the summary of our relationship with that. But he's very invested. I know nothing about rods and reels, but I do know he's talked a lot about the importance of the perfect rod and reel combo, depending obviously on what type of fish you are going for place you are in the world. That's all I know at this point. But I wanted to ask you, as a big fisherman, if you had to pick one rod and reel for the rest of your life, which one would it be? Well, so I, th I thought about this, <laughs> and it is entirely species dependent, right? Uh, you know, because if, if you're talking about a rod that you was catching sunfish brim on, uh, <laughs> you're not going to go catch sailfish on that. Uh, the majority of the fish that I enjoy targeting, which are, especially at this point in my life, which are large flathead catfish, uh, big carp, uh, you'll never beat an Abu Garcia Ambassador 6500. Uh, it's the greatest reel that's, you know, uh, I'm fishing, a, I'm just came back from fishing for flatheads. I was fishing an Ambassador that I bought when I was 10 years old from a Kmart that was going out of business. Uh, you know, buy once, cry once with those reels. Uh, but if I could, if I could really only have one and I, I could, that was it. It'd be my grandmother's rod, uh, which I also just came back from fishing. And this will sound like an exaggeration to people. Uh, but I can assure you that it's not that rod has probably caught close to a million fish, uh, over the course of, of three generations. Uh, and, and so, and it's still rolling, you know, I mean, it's still going strong. I probably caught 200 fish on it this past weekend. Um, and so, yeah, I did put that in my casket. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other question I have for you is your other greatest love, which is books. Uh, again, why we're here. So what Appalachian books would you recommend? Well, you being from Southern Ohio, do you know the writer John Woods? I don't. Oh, man. So John Woods wrote a book called Lady Chevy. Um, 
and that book did decently well in the U.S. Like it, I think that he has an audience now. Where that book did really well was France, uh, and it was a big book in France. But John is a great guy. That's a beautiful novel. Uh, he's from Appalachian, Ohio. Another writer that I don't think gets mentioned enough who has a new book out called Lighthouse Burning uh, is Jordan Farmer. He's a West Virginia writer, uh, and he's very much writing crime fiction. Uh, th this new book, I want to say it's the very first in a in a detective series that he started. You know, my favorite book I read last year was one I mentioned a little while ago, which was another Appalachia uh, by Nima Avashia. Uh, lately, I've been reading... A book of poetry. I love I love poetry probably more than fiction. Uh, you know, I, I just do. Uh, I'm not a poet. I can't write poetry. But uh, there's a new collection by a writer named Denton Loving, who is from uh, East Tennessee. He kind of grew up around Harrogate, Tennessee. Uh, but it's called Tamp, uh, and it's gorgeous. And so if you want me to, I'll read one of his poems to close it out. That would be lovely. All right. All right. Well, so Denton, anybody that knows Denton knows that him and his daddy was was close as it gets, uh, you know, and a lot of his work is about his relationship with his father, uh, you know, and and so a lot of these poems in this new collection are about grieving, uh, you know, and it's it's about loss because uh, because, you know, he's writing after his father's passing. But so the poem I'm going to read is the first poem in this book. It's called Hurdling. I'm five again, and it's so dark I can't see the road. Are we going through a tunnel? My dead father says, no, go back to sleep. He reaches across the bench seat. The weight of his hand quiets the starlings in my belly. I know I'm safe as long as he's close. Within the darkness, stars pinprick the horizon. The small blue egg inside my breastbone cracks with understanding. We're not sweeping through a tunnel under the crush of a mountain. We're hurtling across the heavens on the wings of an ancient magical bird. One of the things I love are themed t-shirts. I do have a fairly large Southern and Appalachian t-shirt collection, and I love Read Appalachia's Tee Public store. Over there on Tee Public, you can find all sorts of designs for t-shirts, tote bags, pins, buttons, magnets. You think, you think of it, it's probably there. And of course, we also have themed state merch, so you can get a Reed Kentucky, Reed Ohio, Reed South Carolina, uh, any state recognized by the Appalachian Regional Commission, um, there is a design for you. We also have a Reed Band Books design um, and all sorts of different things that you can put on whatever merch you so desire. Um, I have the classic Reed Appalachian t-shirt. I really love the tricolor blend, and yeah, I... I love, I love, love, love having t-shirts and all sorts of merch. So I love my t-shirts and magnets and stickers, buttons. They're so lovely. So you can support Read Appalachia and show your Appalachian bookish pride all at the same time. 
So head over to Tee Public, uh, read Appalachia's store there, and I will link that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. You know, I might have included that fishing question for my brother as a, you know, if he ever listens to this, he'll know, but I, I do recognize some of the brand names in that. And I was a horse girl growing up. I was not a, not a fisherwoman, but I still appreciate the level of detail that David Joy has in all of his fishing things. And I think he mentioned in the interview that he also has an uh, anthology out from Hud City Press where he edits an anthology about like fishing essays. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. So of course, check out all of the things he mentioned in the show notes. And now let's talk to Joy Priest. Um, I, I read Joy Priest also on a recommendation. Bernard Clay recommended this book to me when I talked to him for 100 Days in Appalachia. I'll link that in the show notes. And I picked it up and I read it and I was just blown away. Joy Priest poetry. There's something about it that truly captures the Ohio River in a way I have not read before. Though we grew up in different parts of the Ohio River, I could tell that she understood it in a way that few other things I've read have. It is an incredible collection of poetry and horsepower, and I could gush about it forever, of course. But uh, that's why she was at the top of my list of people I want to interview for this podcast. So after her PhD comps, I was so excited that she was available to chat with me. It was perfect timing. And so, yeah, let's jump into the interview with Joy Priest. And she talks about, you know, her past poetry collection, how she came to be a poet, and uh, her new anthology, her new Louisville anthology that she edited. So yeah, take it away, Joy. Uh, well, hi, Kendra, and thanks for having me on this podcast. I'm really excited to be here. Very honored to be here um, and talk about Appalachia. My name is Joy Priest. I am a poet and a scholar, um, author of Horsepower, and uh, a professor of uh, African-American, African diaspora poetry at the University of Pittsburgh, starting this fall. And I'm a member of the Appalachian Poets. Well, that's exciting. Um, and congrats on the new job. That sounds just just like a dream job, doesn't it? Yeah. And I'm here in Appalachia, which is like, I don't know if Pittsburgh folks would, would say that, but <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm here, so. <laughs> um, well, you, like you mentioned, are a poet at I'm always interested with poets because I feel like you all have such a unique creative writing style with poetry. How did you get into poetry? Yeah, um, this question is always, it always stumps me because there's no like discrete moment around it that I can like narrativize. You know, more than anything, I think as my writing as a writer and then later a poet uh, specifically, like my writing emerged organically out of my relationship with reading. Uh, like when I was younger, you know, I grew up in a house, my grandfather had books and he took me to the library every week. And my mom taught me how to read 
pretty pretty early age, maybe around like two, and she read to me every night. And so I was just a reader, and then I just started writing, I guess, like imitating. I don't remember actually writing poems as a kid. I remember writing stories. And then more around middle school, I have a memory of writing a poem about a bird in middle school that my dad looked at. It was a dead bird on our sidewalk, and I showed it to my dad, and he looked at it and I remember his reaction being like really impressed which was really rare with my dad he was like huh you know it it was like I can't remember the exact words but it was something like uh I think this is you know what you do this is I think you're you know that you're this is a pretty (laughs) exceptional kind of talent and so I was like huh okay because you know when you're a kid and adults tell you you're good at something you really lead into that you know my so my dad took me to a few places to read poems like my um we call them cousins but they're like just really close family friends um had like bought this historic mansion in portland and louisville and like turned it into a coffee shop called the java house and so my dad took me to read there when i was in middle school and i started going to maybe like coffee shops and reading and like in the style of like slam and spoken word in high school and college i started a slam team at the University of Kentucky and we went to like the sort of regional competition and that sort of thing but uh, my senior year in college I believe junior senior year I was the president of the National Association of Black Journalists at UK and the faculty mentor for that organization was Frank X Walker you know just in that capacity I kind of learned about who he was and like the Afro-Legend poets and I said okay well you know I write poems too and he was like, oh, okay, well, let me see some. So I went home and like prepared this portfolio of poems and I brought it back to him and he read them and he came back and he said, you know, you have something to say, which is like the most important thing, but you need some craft classes. So I had th- thus far only kind of done like performative poetry, which I think is a great place to start because when you become a poet of the page, the, the, the music is there. It's, you know, and you're in the way you read is there. I started the next semester, even though I was like supposed to be graduating, I took like all the craft classes that UK offers. So I took like his class and Nikki Finney's class and Nikki Finney would become my, the teacher of my like training in life. And I consider myself an imprint, like having apprenticed, you know, in that old style. That's what our relationship felt like. So that's how I kind of started as a poet, a literary poet. I was trained by the Afrolagian poet. Those were my first teachers. Oh, you had some of the best poets in America as your teachers. How did you then go from that phase of your life to putting horsepower together? Yeah, so some of the earliest poems in the book were poems that I brought into workshop uh, as an undergraduate student at the University of Kentucky and Nikki Finney's and Frank S. Walker's beginning creative writing and Nikki Finney's intermediate or advanced creative writing workshops. You know, I'm first generation college student and went on a scholarship, but like, honestly, it wasn't enough. I still check out loans. And, and because I switched my major so much and like went from pre-med to human nutrition, agricultural biotechnology to journalism to ink to whatever like all these different things um I kind of like ended up with this tuition bill and I couldn't move on with my life in terms of education after that so I 
hung around in Kentucky, that's like euphemistic. <laughs> I really wanted to like, I just, I wanted to get out of Kentucky. Um, you know, I, I think I was 25 when I eventually ended up leaving. In the meantime, I sort of like was a waitress. I waited tables, mostly restaurants. I would like get a job, a rest, new a restaurant opening. A lot of people don't know Louisville and Lexington are restaurant test markets. And they would fold and I would go somewhere else and, you know, not really making any money. And then I moved back to Louisville and then I finally got to a point and I, and so I moved back so I can stay with my parents and save money so I could pay off my tuition bill, take the GRE, because in the meantime, I had learned sort of publishing poems and, and sit or sending out poems. I started to write poems, waiting tables and send them out. And the reason I knew about even doing that was because uh, I got in around 2013, I got inducted as a member of the Appalachian Poets. I went to some writing workshops that Nikki created at the Hyman Settlement School in, um, in Hyman, Kentucky. And so I knew, so I, I think my first poem was published in Steel, the journal, Marion Worthington's journal. And so I was just waiting tables and sending out poems. Like, you know, I knew because of, of course, my mentors and teachers that you can be a poet. So that's something I hadn't discovered. And so I just kept researching, you know, writing retreats and journals and things like that and just trying to send my work out and like continue the experience I had with the Afro-Latin poets when I was at UK. Eventually, someone said to me, you should go to Bread Loaf Writers Conference. And I was like, what is that? And I got in in 2014, which is a big deal. Um, and you know, when you go to Breadloaf, there are like 200 people, you have a workshop with a, a very like, you know, advanced career po poet and you have breakfast, lunch, and dinner in the common space every day with these poets. That was a huge thing for me. I just had a poem come out in Best New Poets and one of the faculty recognized it and they were talking to me about MFA programs and I was like, what is an MFA program? And so, at, when I went back to Kentucky and back to work, you know, to go from that to like, oh, back to waiting tables. Um, someone's asking me for extra ketchup or whatever. It was just, I couldn't, I couldn't, it wasn't sustainable for me, like mentally and emotionally. And I just researched what I had to do. And so I just went into this like drive of like paying off the tuition bill, taking the GRE, applying to MSAs which all takes money. So it was just me. I was just working for tips to like save up money for these things. When I, and when I was 25, I got into some MFAs and I left to go study writing. That was in the, the mean before horsepower. So I still, sorry, this is a long answer. <laughs> so to answer your question about between then and horsepower, you know, I ended up uh, doing my MFA at the University of South Carolina where Nikki Finney had she had left UK and went to the University of South Carolina. And I just decided like, that's where I wanted to be. And I wanted, you know, you get a teacher, a first teacher like that. And like, man, you are, it's hard for the other teachers. <laughs> you thought that you ended up getting <laughs> because I mean, like, I mean, she changed my life. I mean, like she teaches the life of a writer, not like the writing industry and community, not competition and these sort of things that are like very, these are Appalachian poet values, you know? And so I did go to a program before that and it just wasn't for me. And it wasn't, it didn't feel like what I, the, what I connected with as a poet and a writer. And so I ended up going where she was teaching in, at the University of South Carolina and it 
wasn't a repeatable program. No one talks about that program. The funding was not high, but it was it was an amazing program for me. I had I got everything I needed there in terms of scholarship. Like there were seminars. It wasn't just craft. It was like theory and literature and creative writing all in and it gave me time. It was a three-year program. It gave me more time to work on the book. And so Horsepower was actually my thesis um, there in my MFA in South Carolina. And so between like, you know, 21, around like 21, 21 years old as an undergrad in Frank and Nikki's classes up to through my MFA, I graduated from my MFA at 30. That 10, those 10 years and Horsepower was published when I was um, two months before I was 32. So between the, that decade, I spent working on the book. And my thesis is what I submitted. So you write a lot about place in your poetry collection, particularly Kentucky. Um, and I wanted to ask, obviously, Kentucky is really important to you and your writing, your art. This is where you received your education. Um, can you talk a little bit about place and how that has impacted your poetry over the course of time? I suspect like you wanting to leave Kentucky but ended up going back, there's a lot of feelings, you might say, wrapped up in your your experience of, of moving from different places. Well, I think writing about place, which, by the way, is a question I got so often when the book first came out. And I, it's one of those things where you're too close to something that you don't realize it's a thing. Like, I didn't know that I was writing place. Like, I just thought that's how do you write. And that's because being a writer of place is such a thing important thing to the tradition of writing in Kentucky to the tradition of writing as in in terms of the Appalachian poets I mean it's it this is a collective around place so like this the Kentucky writers that I read and knew and like who taught me like that's just kind of the thing the thing I got I really don't know how to write otherwise but I really recently become really into this concept called literary mapping which I discovered because um, this writer, Allison Patini Davis, um, she reviewed Horsepower and like introduced this this concept in the review. And it's and it kind of gave me a way to think about what people mean when they say I write about place and like what I'm trying to do when I'm writing about a place. And it's basically like the idea is that this writer from Detroit came up with a term. His name is Frank D. Rashad and he's he basically says, you know, like when we're from these certain kinds of places, right, it becomes like very demanding. Something in us demands that we address like this place and its complexities that because it's places that have been in the national narrative, like the narrative around these places have been simplified or, you know, die, given its due or just like a certain picture is painted about it. And writing horsepower I knew that I was frustrated with sort of the basic popular discourse around race in America. And I felt like Louisville was a very particular, had a very particular like social dynamic that was not just like a local or a national thing, but also evident in my personal story. And it had to do with the way that the city is organized, like geographically, like in terms of segregation. Kentucky is only in the national conversation for certain reasons. And, you know, we know what those are. Um, and, you know, hopefully one of them moves on with his life very soon. Maybe his name is 
mention McConnell, but you know, like we're in the news for like these, like the, always these sort of negative things. It feels like, and no, like no one knows like Louisville's this big, huge, diverse city, and like so, it was very important for me. That felt very important, even if I wasn't like consciously like designing the book around that idea. Yeah. So, li- so literary mapping is like you know using using um, a place and its landmarks and you know anything about it a place and like using it to tell a story. And to me, that's rooted in setting. It's rooted in setting and in the sensory complex. Like when you're from a place, like if you think about it in memory, like if you think back about where you're from, like what do you smell? What do you hear? What do you taste? Like what kinds of foods, what kind of birds, what kind of, you know, and like moving out of Kentucky, that those things became extremely evident to me because I moved directly from Kentucky. I went to New Jersey and then I went to South Carolina then I went to Massachusetts, then I went to Texas. These are all very different places. And I've learned that Kentucky is a gorgeous, beautiful place to live that has virtually no pest and almost no one else in the country gets to live this way. Everywhere else I have lived, there is some very terrifying or formidable animal that just harasses you like all the time. Like I'm like, how do y'all live this way? Flying cockroaches and rats and scorpions like what is going on you know so <laughs> yeah I be- I guess what I'm saying is when I left Kentucky I began to appreciate Kentucky and the memories of it like enter my work you know I I think that is hilarious because I just killed a flying cockroach yesterday so I live in South Carolina so oh you're in South Carolina so yeah, I was in South Carolina when I met those things. And I'm just like, y'all know that other people in the country don't have to live this way. Just, I don't know if you knew that, but you know. It's wild. It's a wild time in Cockroach Land. Um. <laughs> so the last way I wanted to mention that you can support Read Appalachia is by heading over to Pango Books. Now this is a a secondhand book selling app where you can buy and sell secondhand books. And I sell new and like new books there. And that's a way that I support the show. I have so many books in my house. You don't even want to know, uh, but I put books in my shop every week on Mondays and you can be the first there to see what new books are there. I have sales and all sorts of things there, but that is a great way to support the show. And uh, I really love also shopping on Pango Books can, um, you fall down a rabbit hole, shall we say, but also I have found so many early editions of Appalachian books in original hardcover. Like I just found Wiley Cash's first two books in original hardcover and I'm so excited. I'm a big hardcover fan. Um, yes. So the app is also wonderful, but if you don't want to get the app, you can also just register as a guest and purchase a book that way, which is wonderful. So whatever way you find yourself on Pango Books, I greatly appreciate it. You can check out uh, my store there, which I will link in the show notes. All right, back to the show. Well, one of the things about your work that I find really interesting is you have you you discuss Kentucky as a whole, but there's also the different cultures of Eastern Kentucky versus Western Kentucky. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that's impacted your work? 
Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited about this question. So one thing I tell people, by the way, outside of Kentucky, there's always someone that's like, Joy is always talking about Kentucky. Like, here goes Joy talking about Kentucky again. But there's so many things people don't know about Kentucky. It's like the most important state to this country. Let's be honest. So anyways, there are five like geographical regions in Kentucky, or I should say maybe like topographical, you know, there's like the bluegrass region, which is like Lexington to Louisville, Central Kentucky, the Bourbon Trail, the Thoroughbred Farms, the bluegrass, right? And then there's Eastern Kentucky, Coal Country, there's Western Kentucky Farms, Dairy Farms, maybe, I don't know, still anymore. And there's like, I forgot the other, Cave, Cave Kentucky, you know, the caves. So this is like a very diverse state in terms of the geography and and that's why I border so many states too, I think, because it's just like very, it's just a very wide state. But the way that that works into my work, so like as an Appalachian poet too, my connection to East, to Appalachia uh, is actually, I made the connection through my paternal grandparents, my father's parents. My father's from Cleveland, Ohio. My p- grandparents were from Moton, Alabama, or Lawrence County, Alabama. They would probably say Lawrence County, Alabama, which is Appalachian, Alabama. They were sharecroppers in Appalachian, Alabama. So a generation removed from slavery, sharecropping. And of course, during the Great Migration, they, everybody's trying to get out of there because it's the Jim Crow South. So my grandmother and grandfather moved to Cleveland in the 40s. And that's how my dad got up there. Uh, but my grand, my maternal grandfather, who was the one that raised me like as a child, like the first few years of my life, he was from Breckenridge County, Kentucky. So Custer, Kentucky. And he grew up on a farm. And like one of the poems that I addressed that in is like uh, in Horsepower, the wheat from the shafts. And I have to reference this poem to kind of like, this, this is really important to my work. It's like poetry, the poem is an archive. When I became a member of the Appalachian Poets, I was working on that like archival work around family and researching and everything. And some poems are just like records, you know? And so I'm, that's one of those poems, The Wheat from the Shafts. And I like, I had to read it before this to like remember what exactly kind of like my grandfather's parents farmed. So Custer, Kentucky, he was born in 1925. This is actually a title in my book. And they stripped tobacco, sold eggs, and strawberries. He had 11 brothers and sisters during the Great Depression. Yeah, so that's like Western Kentucky. Breckenridge County, Kentucky is Western Kentucky. I don't have a direct connection to Eastern Kentucky. I have a direct connection to to Appalachia as, as a whole. But at Eastern Kentucky, I feel such a kinship with the writers there, like I love the Appalachian Writers Workshop. I I'm, I, I gotta go next year because I'm I miss it, and it just feels like the writing tradition that I'm a part of, you know. But yeah, that Kentucky folks a lot. Shout out to my uncle Henry, uh, my mother's mother's side of the family, Litchfield, you know, and but farmers on both sides. Kentucky is is so fascinating, and there's so many different communities and cultures in Kentucky, like you said. You talked about Louisville, and in your introduction for your new anthology, Once a City Said, where you've edited this collection of 
poets from Louisville. You mentioned this a lot in your introduction, but could you share a little bit from that about how this particular anthology came to be and and why this kind of anthology is so vital for Kentucky? Yeah, everyone wants to be asked. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, that's a two-part answer. On one hand, uh, and this came in when I was justifying it, like, in terms of, like, when, when you, like, get a book that the publisher agrees to do, then you kind of got to make an argument for sometimes you have to fill out this 20 page document uh, to like help market it. And like, what it like basically like about what it is. And one of the things that was important to me was about doing a anthology of poets from Louisville specifically, because I had been in all these different writing um, communities around Kentucky and there's the Kentucky literature in Kentucky writers from Kentucky should be as well known as like basketball bourbon horse racing because writing is a huge tradition in Kentucky historically speaking I mean we have like the first uh U.S. Poet Laureate Robert Penn Warren who won the National Book Award I think maybe also Pulitzer Wendell Berry like we have these like giants um Hunter S. Thompson and you know it's like you know, it's, it's historical, it's a historical tradition here. I So there have already been so many anthologies and things put together around Kentucky writers, but nothing, nothing really around like Louisville specifically. And so that felt important to me. And, you know, I'm a poet from Louisville. And because I have a teacher like Nikki Finney, right? Like it becomes very important for me, like my second project, now that I have some whatever platform like do something that involves like the other writers where I'm from and not just myself and so that's one of the one of the reasons this book came together the uh, the other reason was you know it came organically out of 20 the summer of 2020 so you know I was at a fellowship in Massachusetts this is like post MFA when the pandemic happened but also when um, people started going out into the streets and protesting. And that was the summer that Breonna Taylor was shot and killed in Louisville. And so it wasn't just these like, you know, distant protests. There were people I knew outside every day in the streets and specifically writers that I knew. Like the people in the streets in Louisville, they overlapped with writers in Louisville. Like they were the same people. The writers in Louisville were out at, out protesting. And so, and I was getting phone calls. You know, I was a journalist in Kentucky as well. So I was getting updates from journalists. Like I saw the affidavits before they were public. And, you know, there's a certain way in, in journalism that you have to tell a story. You're very restricted in a way that you aren't in poetry. And that's also why I made that transition. So I was learning things from the journalists and I was hearing from the poets and I did this um, workshop with Sarah Band, so th that was like kind of focused around the idea of like capturing what their writers, like their experiences, like giving them something to say. That was giving them a space to say something. And that was important because when I would, I'm in Massachusetts and when I look at the news, like, which happens a lot, there's no one from, they're like not talking to anyone from Louisville or from Kentucky. There are like a lot of national pundits discussing it, but like they're not really talking to anyone on the ground. And so 
me seeing that, but also hearing from writers in Kentucky every day, I thought we, you know, we should do something where the people that are there that are protesting, that are experiencing this thing, that have grown up in this experience, have somewhere to write. And so I, the first thing I did was just kind of tweet out and ask like journals if they were interested in publishing a folio. And Kristen Miller, who's the new director of Saraband Books, which is a national indie publisher, very well known, um, very successful established press, but is headquartered in Louisville. Um, she reached out and said, what about an anthology? And so, you know, that's a long, that's a longer term project, but I thought, you know, is it more important, like the journalism way to break the news on something to get it out the fastest, or is it important to have something that, you know, we take the time to make sure it is, is right, is, is being said, is, is includes things that aren't just about the what's that rhetoric word I like that isn't just about like the exigency of the moment but about the condition that has characterized this place for a long time and that takes longer and it's not about getting it out first and so I guess this is three years later you know we have this anthology but it it it's of course it came out of that moment but it's also like it's not that it's more important than that moment, but that it, I think, encapsulates why that moment happened in the first place, you know, so. You mentioned that journalists weren't even talking to people on the ground and they were just, uh, you know, talking on screens without actually asking you. Would you say that this is, in, a, in its own poetic way, a pushback against that kind of parachute journalism that you, the, you know, the communities there were experiencing? Yeah, I mean, you know, and I and the local journalists, like some of them did very good work. I mean, like the Courier won a Pulitzer that for the work they did that summer. But in terms of like national, just like mainstream consumer-driven news, like those major networks, right? That happens a lot where there's a certain narrative that they want to push, but they're not really interested in like they're not interested in talking to. Um, the coal miners on strike. They're not into, you know, they just want people to comment on it that like support a certain narrative. And so one of the things that I began the book with is this quote from James Baldwin, who of course, Nikki is the one that first played this speech for me with, that I took the quote from. It's called The Art of Struggle for Integrity. But he says, um, I quote it at the beginning of the, the forward to the book, he says, the poets are finally the only people who know the truth about us. Soldiers don't, statesmen don't, priests don't, union leaders don't, only the poets. Something awful is happening to a civilization when it ceases to produce poets and when it ceases to believe in the report that only poets can make. And, you know, that's not to say that, like, union leaders or priests don't have important roles in community it's just that the like because of the nature of po of a poet, they're the only ones who can tell this certain kind of truth. And for me, that nature is that they don't have an allegiance to anything or anyone. Like a journalist has an allegiance to their employer, their uh, funders. You know, uh, a priest has an allegiance to the Bible, um, Christianity, religion. The statesman has a 
unfortunately, ex- as we see, see to the extreme of these days, has an allegiance to their campaign funders, lobbyists, they, pro- they promise things to, you know, but the poets, they don't have an allegiance to anybody. You know, we don't think, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why I think it's important. I might get like blazed for this, but it's kind of important that poets don't make a lot of money off of this thing, you know, um, in a way, uh, I think we should make more money, but I'm, I think it's like great that we can't make like seven figures, like a novelist or something, because, you know, we, it starts to get to a point and that's a more complicated discussion. Like once you get into the industry, this may not be so true, but like, there's a way in which I think is important that we don't, we're not indebted to these sort of external uh, forces. We're telling what we understand the truth to be uh, based on our observations of humanity. And because we like, we need to say this thing, like that's, that's where the allegiance is at. So um, yeah, to answer your question, I think, I don't know if it's more so a pushback and I'm against like parachute journalism, but it's definitely a, like my attitude was definitely like, this is a part of, this is the most important part of the group of people who can report on a community or a society and it's being left out. And like, because I have this opportunity, it's my responsibility to um, pull this together somehow. You mentioned that this is the poets coming together and kind of sharing their truth. And one of the things I love about anthology is all the different perspectives so that you get a a bunch of different people describing their experiences um, in a lot of different ways. As you were pulling together this anthology and finding contributors, did you find that there were a lot of recurring themes in the poems that you were receiving? Yeah, for sure. I and this is a place-based anthology, even within Louisville, because I really thought about, I was living about neighborhoods and communities. I mean, it is a city of neighborhoods, you know, and um, I learned a lot putting this book together. I knew, I could tell as I began to read through the submissions, I was like, oh, there are many things. As as much as I talk about Kentucky and Louisville constantly to people that aren't from here, there are many things I don't know about Louisville. There are communities I don't know about. And so, like, one of those is, like, um, Aaron writing about, like, Schnitzelberg, the German um, neighborhoods of Louisville. And, like, I learned that, like, oh, in the 19th century, like, specifically Kentucky and San Francisco were the two places that, like, German immigrants went. And my mother's father, the ones that had the farm in Western Kentucky, they're German. Um, they're Brunners. They're, like... German, you know, they've been they've been here for a while. They came like before the 20th century, but you know, they were so it's like I was learning things that I that just enriched my understanding of Louisville and of Kentucky. Um, but the recurring themes that I found is actually what ended up structuring the book. So they're like these four sections and they are like traditions and icons. There's a poem about Muhammad Ali or Gene Rabin. Isaac Mercy. So these different like iconic figures and places, the hot brown, which is a San- Louisville sandwich. The second section is place and protest. So really focusing on like a lot of the poems that came out of that workshop I did, but the protests that were going on, um, but also in a long-term way. So um, there are poems that like capture what was happening that summer, but there's, but I felt place 
was related to protests because there's also poems about like long-term issues that have been occurring like and this is another example of like something i learned about i didn't know about there's a poem in there by this poet steve cameron called rubber town and he grew up in this neighborhood and it's like in the shadow of like all the industrial factories along the river and i saw him met him when we did the launch in june and just love that guy like it's like this is a person i would never like cross paths with in Louisville growing up ever at all for any reason that was all the beautiful things about this anthology is like all these people I knew from these different communities like West Louisville and we're like there with poets I knew from like the University of Louisville where there are Spalding University we're there with poets I knew from like South Louisville white working class Louisville you know it's just like with I don't want to make it sound like a kumbaya moment but it was like yeah this is like important And it speaks to this tradition of cross-racial organizing that Kentucky was a part of, like, in terms of it's, like, white working class and black, like, coal miners, you know, in the the past, which the recent candidate who went up against Mitch McConnell, Charles Booker, like, he was trying to run on with, like, from the hood to the holler. So, you know, that, and I, I was thinking a lot about his campaign, too, because I started working on this when he was campaigning. But, um... So that that's that section, place and protest, and then their spirit and song, which just different any t- like traditions in Louisville around like music and or like ghost stories are there, and the final one is portrait and memory, and that's just really like a like a lot of personal narrative and like people remembering certain places or landmarks or settings. So yeah, those are the themes that came up, which I think could be universal to any city, really. But It sounds like it was just a very fulfilling kind of project. Um, And the thought that went into the organization and all of these incredible contributors, well, those are all the main questions that I had. But I always like to take a moment and check in, see if there's anything else that you'd like to talk about that we haven't covered. I never said, like, I never said that, like, um, you know, ultimately how Horsepower became a book and how it's like really propelled my life into this different place. My life changed when it came out. And just to characterize that moment, you know, I described that decade of like, you know, meeting the Appalachian poets, they were then becoming my teachers and becoming like a poet, like this, my poetry becomes my vocation and, and going through school and everything. But when I finished my MFA, I submitted it to the contest, and one of them I submitted to, the one that I won the Donald Hall Prize for Poetry from AWP, I remember I submitted to that contest because I thought, this is a poet, the judge, person judging can see my work. They're going to be able to see why this is important. And, be, and I think looking back, it's like, oh, because I mean, there are similar themes in our work, but also because like she is a poet of place. And so Natasha Trethewey, chose this book as a winner of the contest which was huge because you know it's like a black southern poet writing out of a place mississippi um about not just like the personal interpersonal dynamics of racism but the sort of national historical story of race in this in this country and so that's how this came to be a book and that was like such a huge moment but the book came out in this moment of like it was the pandemic 20 it came out in september 2020 so i was stuck in my house in houston 
And it was the first semester of my PhD. And so in this same moment, it's like there was a pandemic. I was starting my PhD. My book came out and I agreed to start doing this anthology. So it was that was like a huge year, season, moment, month. And I'm sort of now, this in this moment I'm in now, it's like everything I've received, this job, my life, um, messages from people, is just coming out of that very, very difficult um, time. And it's just really rewarding. And I feel really blessed. So, Well, the last question I have for you is, of course, you know, this is a book podcast. So what books would you like to recommend? I always like to talk about like, that I feel like people might not know these people are from Appalachia, like Mickey Giovanni, for example, or August Wilson. These people we don't traditionally, or maybe their things haven't, weren't traditionally marketed as Appalachian books or Appalachian writers because there was a time when we didn't celebrate that. I really love Ron Rash out of North Carolina, Appalachian, North Carolina. Like I've inhaled everything he's written. Difficult work but like just wonderful, especially the short stories. Um, I'm really excited about Crystal Wilkinson's new book that's coming out. That's like a recipe book, like Appalachian, like food recipes. And that also has been one of my great teachers. Uh, Robert Geip's um, graphic novels are great. And I love him. He's a wonderful person and just funny. I'm sure I'll think of like 10 more things after this but i just like i mean make a list of appalachian writers because you're gonna get your life like reading all that on all the work that this you'll just i mean you'll just know you'll know like oh this is where the great creation of writing started when you read a good list of appalachian writers well we've talked a lot about your poetry today uh why don't you read a couple poems to close this out Quilt and Frames. Quilt and Frames was what they called Charlie's mule because its bones were like a rack its skin hung over. The mule had more sense than he did taking his drunk ass home every day, my grandmother says on the phone from Cleveland, a long way from Alabama now. She says when they'd been sewing for a while and the quilt had grown heavy as an animal's coat, they would throw it over a wooden frame to keep it upright. Says she and the other women would sit on the porch same time every evening to see Charlie ride by on his way in from town, Landsville, where he'd go like all the other men after 13 hours in the field. He'd be stone drunk and thrown over the back of that damn mule, she says, which knew its way home and how to hold up a worked thing. I ne have never read this poem out loud. Um, so this is the exclusive um, for this podcast only. The Wheat from the Shaft. My skin is summer, red, brown, and singing. My papa and I at his kitchen table, antique pennies stacked in leaning towers of tin. Through magnified glass, he offers what he has of value how to spot twin wheat heads sprouting up the coin's curves. His hands translucent and veiny, one cradling a viceroy, 
sort through the pile of pennies along with mine. My mother says he would have been born to farmers in Custer, Kentucky, 1925, would have stripped tobacco and sold eggs, strawberries, 11 brothers and sisters, five years old when the depression hit. I'm small enough to tuck myself into his lap when I land a finger on my first red scent. No Lincoln Memorial on its tail, only frontier-era stalks of unassuming wheat. He tosses the coin into a cigar box, each row into a cotton sack. When we find tin, we stack, tilt, slide a row down the paper wrapper, copper cascades into the dark. She says, when I was a girl, he delivered dry cleaning to black families in the West End, resented them, except for one man at 32nd and Magnolia, whose porch he set on trading fishing stories. He gave dad his first jar of coins. We take the full sack to Gummers and Company down on West Broadway, then start over at the bank where he buys more rolls to call to get out of his idle mind. Back at home, the Dresden Avenue breeze reaches at us through the propped open screen door while we search for the one worth more than the others, the exception. Isn't Joy Priest poetry just so wonderful? I love the way that she evokes Kentucky with her poems, the way that she just calls forth the Ohio River. It just, it means so much to me. And there's just really something special about her poetry. Well, friends, we've made it. We've made it to the end of the episode. Uh, I've been editing this episode for days and one of the things that sticks out to me over and over is how much just in the last several months how poetry has become a vital part of Read Appalachia and that that brings me a lot of joy so I hope you have been enjoying that uh, that journey along with me okay friends that's our show a heartfelt thank you to David Joy and Joy Priest for coming on the show today you can find all of their social media and all the books they mentioned linked in the show notes. Like I mentioned earlier in the show, you can find all of the myriad of ways that you can support Read Appalachia on readappalachia.com. And you can find Read Appalachia across social media at Read Appalachia. You can find me, Kendra, across social media at KD, as in Dylan Winchester. And of course, those will also be linked in the show notes. Make sure to join us next time in September for our next Poetry Corner episode. And then we will be having our next themed episode, which I am very excited about. It's all about rural literature for young people. Perfect for back to school. But until then, happy reading. <laughs>